Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's been 35 years since David Byrne won the Oscar for original score for The Last Emperor. And he's back at the awards show with the original song he did with Sunlux and Mitski called This Is A Life from Everything, Everywhere, All At Once. We are on a road to paradise today on Crew Call with David Byrne. Free from destiny Not only what we sow to writing film songs or film scores you're very specific there are certain you know there are certain pop musicians who will find film scoring and become and completely devote themselves to it it's a whole different way of working can you talk about that because i got to imagine after you won the oscar for last emperor you, you pro- I, I got to think you had a thousand offers for film scoring. And you're like, no, no, no. Uh, actually, I didn't have that many, but I had a few. <laughs> I, did, I did one with Jonathan Demme. Um, it was a lot of fun because we'd worked together before. So that was an easy relationship. Um, yeah, I have not done that many. There are people who really get into it and put a team together and whatever, like Brent Reznor has a whole, has a, guy Atticus that he works with. Um, there's a, a British artist, uh, Mika Levy, who does amazing scores. Um, there's people who, re- who come out of kind of my world and the music world and then really kind of latch on to film production and kind of make that a really big part of their kind of creative, creative world. I kind of do it occasionally. Um, and... Yeah, like I'm, I'm doing some songs for a uh, Netflix animated show now, but those things, yeah, you do them and it, it's not going to come out for a year because it's animated. Um, so, yeah, and it's but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun um, as long as people give you really clear direction as to what kind what they want the music to do and what's going on and what's the context and all that, then then it becomes pretty easy to do it. Um, Yeah. On this one, on uh, Everything Everywhere, um, I knew, uh, I had some communication with the guys from Son Lux. It was really their manager, Michael Kaufman, that I knew. He also worked with Sufjan Stevens. a bit and so I kind of knew him so he reached out to me and just said oh uh, 
they're doing a score and they're working with the, the Daniels on this film. Uh, are you interested? They may have already had Mitski lined up and said, do you want to do it as a duet with a song, a duet with Mitski? And I just, I'm a fan of her. So I said, yeah, I'll do that in a minute. Uh, let's talk about what it should be. Um, they were, <laughs> I didn't need a lot of convincing, but the Daniels decided to send me, you know, a rough cut anyway to try and convince me. I was already sold on the idea, having seen some of their other work. But then I saw it and I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is really amazing. Um, I'm very happy to be associated with this. What spoke out to you? What spoke, what spoke to you in the movie? Well, it was so innovative and imaginative. Um, so a lot of unexpected stuff. I remember when I was watching this rough cut, like the first 15 minutes or so, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. These guys did a uh, sort of domestic drama of this family who runs a laundry, a laundry, you know, a laundromat, because that's where the beginning all takes place. And I thought, that's a really interesting choice. Not what I would have expected from them. But uh, then, of course, it goes, boom, invention, et cetera. And, you know, yeah, kind of spins off in a million directions after that. Um, yeah, and I, but at the end of the film, at the end of the film, I realized uh, that as wacky as the movie is, it actually has a lot of heart. There's a lot of it that's about forgiveness and redemption and this family kind of coming back together that was squabbling all the time. People that you wouldn't expect to get together are actually coming together and making amends. Uh, and I said, that's what the song needs to pick up on that tone rather than the kind of craziness. The craziness is what everybody's going to have in the front of their heads when they're watching this movie. But what really holds it together, especially at the end, is this kind of very emotional core that, that it builds towards. And I thought that's the song has to like put a pin in that and say, this is what this movie is about. So tell me about, you know, what's beautiful here and, and very interesting. You would think, okay, David Burns associated with this song. Okay, he's leading the vocals. But your background, you're this beautiful background. Can you talk about that? Making that decision and putting Mitski forward. <laughs> I think was, it was great. That was a, kind of a surprise to me, um, to be honest. Uh, I thought we were going to like trade lines or, you know, that's that's usually the case. It's how you take this line, I'll take this line, and we'll then we'll sing harmonies on this stuff. But it works. Kind of, yeah, that's kind of the usual way it would be done. And um, instead, instead, I got a recording with her singing pretty much what well, up to that time was the entire song. And they said, David, can you, can you write things or come up with stuff that responds to her in the spaces between what she's singing? And I said, okay, that's, give me a minute to do that. Um, so yeah, so I wrote additional lyrics and melodies and stuff that kind of snaked around her melodies and then would join together at certain points and then kind of be this, a real duet where it's kind of 
she sings, she sings and I respond, she sings and I respond. Uh, and well, it, it, it worked, it worked. Uh, it wasn't what I expected to be doing, but it, I thought, yeah, it worked out really well. But I mean, but it, it's a song that totally fits in your canon and the gospel, the, the kind of sort of, this is, these are my words, gospel opening, you know, you know, kind of jives with uh, Road to Nowhere. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. That came from, of course, from the Sun Lux guys. That was not me. But yeah, that it all seemed really comfortable working in, in that world. What do you write on? Do you write on, do when you write a song, do you do it on piano? Do you do it on guitar? Or it depends. Uh, I'll usually do it on guitar or ukulele or a little tiny guitar, something uh -huh. like that. Um, you can play if you want. No, that's okay. I don't have anything right here. Um, that's really what I do. And I'll just kind of record it on the voice memo thing on my phone and just write down, okay, what, what did I play? What chords did I play there to have the melody go? And I'll record like that. And uh, that's usually the way I work. And then sometimes I'll work where I'll program beats that I like. And I'll program a groove that I like and then try and write something. I'll play along with that, see if I can come up with something. Because, uh, yeah, that's a different kind of music, stuff that's more groove-oriented, groove but this was not, and uh, yeah. There was a song, I I, I overheard uh, an interview with you. There was a song from Naked that you wrote in a rental car. Do you usually write your songs when you're driving? Which I know is not an unusual thing. I heard, I there's a, there's a legend that Michael Jackson wrote Billie Jean, driving down Van Nuys. <laughs> um, yeah, um, just picturing Michael Jackson at the wheel of some car going down Van Nuys Boulevard with a little kind of voice recorder in his hand uh, going, huh? Well, that's, that's a legend. She's, I don't know if she's just the one that thinks that I'm the one. She's just a girl that thinks that I'm the one. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, it, well, I don't have a car, so it's being, uh, but I do drive, so it's often a rental. And my, the opportunities to drive are, I'm not driving and commuting all the time. But I do other, you know, other things. I used to uh, go jogging and I'd carry a little voice memo thing with me. Um, other, there's probably other activities that I can think of where, you know, you keep part of your kind of, part of your mind, get it occupied by some kind of mundane task that, you know, that doesn't take up all your mind. And that kind of lets the creative part kind of float to the surface and different things come, come forward that you didn't expect. You don't tend not to overthink things and they just, things just spill out. Um, when you're kind of doing that, whether it's, you know, you're washing the dishes or running or driving or whatever. So yeah, sometimes some activity like that will kind of free your mind a little bit. Tell me about finding um, Sunlux because Ryan was telling me a story that he says, we're going to our gig in New York and we're going down the street and we see David on his bike and we're like, oh, there's David Byrne. And so I think they were kind of following you. And then it wound up, you drove straight to their, to the club. 
you rode your bike straight to the club where where their gig was going to be. And they were like, they he recalled that being one of the first times he got to meet you. Tell me about how they landed on your radar and what fascinated you with them. Boy, I'm, I don't, to be honest, I do remember going to see them at the club, meeting them, saying hello. I don't remember what, what record or recording or song or whatever it was that kind of that kind of uh, connected me with them, but there was something I heard from older record from years ago that I heard, and I thought, "Oh, this is really interesting." And they're look at this crazy stuff that they're, they're doing in Indianapolis or wherever they are. Um, that's maybe a little unexpected in here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I went to check them out. And as I said, I already had a connection with their manager uh, who'd worked with uh, Sufjan. And so, yeah, so we got to meet, say hello. Are all of you going to be performing on the Oscars? Yes, we are, yeah. I think they're gonna announce that today or tomorrow or something like that. Got it. The um, the other thing I wanted to to ask you about at any given point in time, like how many projects do you have going on? Like, for example, you're prepping, you've got um, the Imelda Marcos musical, which you're bringing back to to New York mm -hmm. in, a, in a completely different style. Um, I mean, do you like to do you like to focus on one thing at a time or do you have several? When I'm kind of there's periods where it's like all the focus is on one thing, but uh, a lot of times to get something to that point can take a long time and, and it's very sporadic and you you can't push it to go any faster than it wants to go. Uh, the Here Lies Love thing that's coming to New York, we've been trying to get that to a Broadway theater for, I don't know, eight years or more now. And so you, it's not like that I could say, okay, that's the only thing I'm doing, trying to get that to a Broadway theater. It'd be a waste of my time. But when it comes up, we would go look at a theater and we'd figure, figure it out and try and do a budget and figure out, is this feasible? And finally, finally this year it was, or last year it was. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of having different, whatever, things on the stove, some of which are simmering at a really low heat and others are kind of, come to a boil and you, you have to give them your full attention. Um, last last year I did a an immersive theater thing in Denver, mm -hmm. uh, at a warehouse in Denver. So I was there all summer working on that. And But then, you know, before that, it was very sporadic, real, getting it up to that point. The concept of um, the musical, it's, it's like puts it puts the audience in with the dance. Can you describe it to us? It's it's a very new concept. It's it's merging audience with those on stage. Yes, the um, I, one of the inspirations for the show was when I read that Imelda, the wife of the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, loved going to discos. Uh, she'd go to Studio Fifty Four. She installed a mirror ball in her New York townhouse. You really was living that life. So I thought, well, let's recreate that. Um, so the concept is 
we take out all the orchestra seats and the, extend the stage and the entire orchestra and stage of the theater becomes a disco floor. Mm -hmm. And the audience, however, maybe a third of the audience, a good portion of the audience, comes. It's, they're invited on the stage on that on the disco floor. The other rest of the audience is kind of around it on balconies and things like that, so they can watch what's going on. The performers perform on little stages at the end of the disco floor and kind of these catwalk runways that run along the edge. Uh, of the dance floor. And then sometimes they come in and they, they're right there with the audience and interacting with the audience. It's not, it's not one of those things where the audience is expected to do things that will make them look silly or embarrass them, uh, but it puts them really in the action. Uh, so they really feel like they're a part of the story that's really happening to them. And they're not just watching it on a stage. I have to say it works really well and uh, we're excited to bring it to a, this larger venue. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. Now you've been trying to get it to the stage, you know, to the Broadway, to, yeah. to the Broadway stage. Cause it, I know it, 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 it premiered in New York a few years ago, but why is the, why is the time ripe for it now? How is it timeless? Well, it's about, the story is about this woman who um, comes from a kind of very a poor background and she's very beautiful. And she, she marries an up and coming politician who eventually becomes president. Um, they're well loved, at first they're very well loved. And, and they even keep their campaign promises of building schools and highways and all the kind of things that are needed. And then, you know, as have we've seen happen, they get a little power hungry and they eventually, uh, Ferdinand Marcos declares martial law, which means that he can muzzle the press, he can do whatever he wants and nobody knows about it. Um, the country, the whole country is kind of in, you know, virtual lockdown. So then there's a you know, sequestering money and there's killings and explosions and uh, democracy is basically over. And after a number of years of that, uh, they, they kind of make the mistake of killing uh, Ferdinand's political rival who was exiled to the US and decided to come back and kind of to see if he could bring back democracy to the Philippines. They kill him right away. And that kind of triggers, that, that's kind of like the last straw for the people. So within a couple of years after that, there are mass demonstrations and the Marcoses are peacefully ousted. They're air, airlifted by US helicopters and they go into exile in Hawaii. Um, that's another story why the U.S. decided to give harbor to these uh, dictators, but that's what happened. But what's really moving to the audience is that the audiences, uh, like the Philippine people, were very much 
love these people, love this these politicians and this couple, and then they realize that they're being tricked. Uh, at some point, they realized, oh no, this has gone to a very dark place. We have to get rid of them, and they do, and they do it peacefully. Nobody was killed. There was no no violence. It was a very peaceful thing, and eventually they got rid of them. So they has this very kind of uplifting, hopeful ending, and uh, yeah, we see dictators all over the world now. Uh, People are probably asking themselves the same question. And the son of Imelda and uh, Marcos and Ferdinand is the president of the Philippines right now. So we'll see if if the Philippine people have to do it all over again. Is there a preview date? Yeah, the free previews I heard was uh, June 17, was what I heard. Excellent. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How does it feel to come back to the Oscars when you won? Was that surreal? Yeah, it was surreal. Um, I mean, I think like it was that was for scoring, and there was, there was the people were up were up for scoring was like John Williams and you know these incredible soundtrack people that I just thought, oh come on, we don't have a hope. You know, these Oscar campaigns are run like political campaigns. You know, I've, not- I've noticed, yes, I've noticed. Like the, the strat, I mean, the strategists, they're almost like Karl Rove. <laughs> uh-huh, <laughs> yes. They have the old age home filling out ballots, teaching them how to fill out ballots. Oh my God, yes. So people, everybody who's won in the past gets to vote on certain votes, yeah, certain categories. But, yeah. at, but at that time, and there wasn't a lot of that going on back then, was it just, how did this happen? Yes, it was kind of like, how did this happen? Uh, I mean, I thought we did a nice, a, a good score. It was a gorgeous thought, score. Thank you. But I, um, I thought, really? Really? Um, but I thought, okay, we got lucky. We got lucky. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to go. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was slightly surreal, but a lot of fun. What was the takeaway from working for you from um... – from working with, I'm going to ask you this about Bernardo Bertolucci and Jonathan Demi when it came to filmmaking and music. Both of them, uh, this is common with other filmmakers as well, both of them wanted the, the music to create a mood as opposed to hit certain kind of edit beats. I mean, there are certain filmmakers who want the music to like, when the character opens a door, I want the music to completely change. Uh, because should go from light and cheerful to dark and scary. Uh, they didn't want things like that. They wanted like establish a mood for this whole scene. And uh, so that le- left it open for me to make something that had an atmosphere, but was also kind of melodic. Now, Jonathan was, was a very good friend. You'd worked on Stop Making Sense with him. Um, with Bernardo, 
were there moments of you had to tear up something that you just wrote or no, when you set on a tone, things kind of went in that direction? There was a bit of trial and error in the beginning. Um, I did a bunch of like demos of different sorts and we sent them to him and the producers and say, how do you like this direction? How do you like that direction? What did, you know, that kind of thing. They wanted to, um, they wanted to be very careful not to have it be like some fake Chinese music um, or like orchestral music with little Chinese touches in it. They wanted to, and, and so they sent me, when they were shooting, they picked up all these cassettes of contemporary and traditional Chinese music. So I had this whole stack of cassettes that I was listening to, which was really enlightening because I realized that, I mean, this was before the kind of Chinese economic miracle, before they kind of opened up a bit, it was all this different, all these different kinds of music that were being done there. Uh, you, could, you, you couldn't generalize about any of it. So I just said, oh my God, okay. It could be anything. <laughs> and, and it's, they're doing all this. You can't like, there's not one particular kind of Chinese music. So that left it kind of wide open. I could kind of do whatever whatever felt right to me. And I, there was a little bit of, uh, I would say kind of Chinese influence in the, in the music I did, more than there was in what uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto did. And um, so, but, you know, we kind of tried to find a balance there. For me, the main title theme from the moment I watched the movie to now, I hear your voice. I hear, I hear that like the main title theme, the octave sounds like it's right in your range. Like <laughs> almost like you were going la, 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 la. It might've been, yeah, it might've been doing that. I know that uh, a little while after that, a Cantonese uh, singer in China did a vocal version of it. It really? was like, a, they turned it, they turned it into a pop song. Oh, wow. So that made me feel like, well, I guess the, uh, I guess some Chinese folks really like this melody. Oh, wow. Wow. But I mean, when immediately when the, the main title theme came up, to me, it was like, oh, yeah, he did the music. Like in a very good way. Uh -huh. In a very good way. Oh, thank so. you. Thank you very much. I want to talk about True Stories, one of my favorite films. It No, my favorite film of 1986. Um, what was the coming away from that? Uh, I mean, such a creative film. John Goodman, I think before America knew John Goodman. Um, what was your experience with that? Was it, was it a, a wonderful experience, meaning like, making a making a, a film with Warner Brothers or was it like okay I did that I'm going to move on it was a wonderful experience I, I really had a great time again it took a while to kind of get get the script in order and find out where we were going to do it and all that all those kinds of things but that was part of the fun uh, I made multiple trips to Texas and got shown around by folks there and said, oh, David, you got to see this place. You got to see this. You got to see this. And that kind of helped form my, my sense of, oh, this is what it can be. This is the way it can look. Um, 
and I took lots of pictures and made notes of what time of day I took the pictures because uh, we got to film there at you know in the morning when the light is looking like there. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of the actors were was great. The it was produced by a guy named Ed Pressman who just passed away about two weeks ago. Um, he was very generous and you know he said yeah well you know we'll do this and from him being on board warner brothers said okay okay you got a real producer now <laughs> we'll do it but it was such a great concept i mean it was you know it was around it was after it was after the wall i remember that pink floyd the wall it served as your album and it also you know as far as like um you were very sincere in the movie, but it was very comedic as well. And it's, you know, in its docu-style. I mean, it's still novel and still ahead of its time. Can you can you tell me about that? Yeah, I didn't want it to be totally plot-driven. Um, I was more interested in these various odd characters, musical numbers, kind of the visual elements that would give you an impression of this place and where kind of where parts of the United States were at this particular time and place. Uh, and well, I got, I did got help from different people. Jonathan Demi came in and looked at, I'd been doing storyboards and had them pinned all over the wall of my house. I had the book. I had the book. Yeah. I so he, storyboards. Yeah. I remember he said, Oh, David, I think you need what, what he referred to as a clock. Um, which didn't mean a, uh, an actual clock. It meant that there's, you have a sense that, there's t that you're going somewhere. So I said, oh yeah, there's gonna be this um, talent show at the end of the movie and everybody's getting ready for that. So, so there's like a clock ticking. Oh, we're getting ready for this. Are you gonna go to it? Who's gonna be there? I'm gonna meet you, I'm gonna see there. Uh, and so you, you, there's a little bit of moment, momentum established. It's kind of an old, advice, but it was really good, good advice. Um, I remember that a screenwriter who worked on a number of uh, the Robert Altman movies, a woman named Joan Tewksbury, told me, because I, I said, your movies, his movies from that time, had these scenes that were seemed completely unrelated, and it would go from one to another and different characters and uh, it didn't jump, follow a normal narrative uh, thread. And she said, yeah, but you can, you can establish an emotion in one scene and then carry that emotion through to another scene with other characters in a completely different place. Uh, that's sort of an abstract idea, but I thought, oh, okay, there's a way to do this. There's a way to do this where it's not a literal thread, but it's an emotional thread. Theater of the mind, will it come to New York? Or do you think you'll stage it again in another city? Yeah, yeah, uh, we're talking to a couple of other places now. I think because New York is an expensive city, it probably won't be the first one you go to next, but we're really optimistic that we'll, that it's gonna have a life and keep keep moving to different cities. I love the concept of it. It's your life, but it's not your life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. People were always asking me, so did you do that? Were you ever a DJ? I said, no, but it's plausible, right? I, I, 
I have a couple more questions. Thank you for your time. Um, I, I, I know about, I read a story about you in high school and being rejected by the choir, which I, I think is, um, I think is atrocious because you, you have such a beautiful voice, but did you ever do any high, like, did you ever do any high school productions? Did you ever do Pippin or anything? Any, any no. stage musical? Nope, I never did any of that, uh, any kind of high school theater. I, I think one time I might have run for student council president and I might have done my kind of, rather than doing a speech, I might have done like a musical performance on the ukulele or something like that. Uh, but that was about it. And then um, early on in um, your career, can you tell us about a really pivotal moment? like a time when everything changed? Was there a moment when Talking Heads was on stage in a club in New York and that record executive was there that just made your whole lives go 180? Or was it something else? Or was it a buildup of events? Our kind of acceptance in the kind of, in your clubs and things was kind of gradual, which was really good. It was really good. We didn't like, we didn't like jump at the first book that was dipped in the water. Um, I remember, I think it was in 1980 or so, we uh, we had done a record and we realized we needed more musicians to kind of realize that that music. And so we we kind of doubled the size of the band, at least, maybe more. And uh, our first performance with this larger group was at a festival called Heat Wave in Toronto. And I, wow, that kind of blew my mind. It felt completely different than what we'd done before. Uh, it felt really ecstatic and exciting and joyous, whereas before it felt kind of angsty and inward directed. And I thought, wow, this is a completely different feeling. Uh, I'm going to have to write different music now. Now, my last question, and I know you're always asked this, but I'm going to try to convert you and make this happen. Um, Coming away from the 2002, when when you came together with Talking Heads, what what was that? Was that a great thing? Was it because everybody wants? I mean, everybody would love to see a Talking Heads reunion, but I know, you know, you're very specific about, you know. The, you and, and the other band members are very specific about coming back together again. I'm just curious, you know, and this happens. It happened with Monty Python, but they eventually came back together. <laughs> no, we're not going to do it. I think most of those reunions are purely for money. Or mm -hmm. Once in a while, you see one where you go, this is a group that never got appreciated. Uh, they didn't get their due when they were around first around. And now they now they have an audience who understands them and loves them, and so they're going to cash in. God bless them. Let, yeah, they should they should be allowed to do that. But we did okay. We don't need to kind of do this. You did more than okay. Yeah, yeah. We don't. That's what I'm saying. We weren't like this uh, band that nobody'd ever heard of, but got love. You know, we got the love ten years later after we parted ways. No, we were doing okay. So uh, I feel like now we don't have to get together for that. We're, we did what we did. We did it really well, really proud of it, but I don't feel a need to do it again. David Byrne, 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. 